when I was going through graduate school and, and uh, very eager to be in ministry and to teach God's Word and to work in His church. I always look forward to those times when uh, one of my teachers outside of class would say, let's get a meal together, breakfast or lunch. I was excited, not just because of what would be on the menu, but because you knew that there was going to come a moment where you were going to talk about some things and hear things and be encouraged, taught, and challenged. You cannot have dinner with one of your professors and not get into that most important stuff. So Brent, I appreciate the way that you called us around the Lord's Supper table. And on behalf of Jesus Christ, you welcomed us all to the table of the Lord. I want to welcome you now to the Word of God. And would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that uh, we also have this Word. Because it enriches us and it builds us up just as the meal around your Lord's Supper table does for us. So I pray that we take these words in. I pray that you would be with me as I speak these words. I pray that you'd be with all of us as we hear these words. And I pray that they will shape us into the people that you want us to be. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, we're in Revelation 18. And we are going to be told not to cry for Babylon. And there's going to be a lot of crying for Babylon in this text. Revelation 18 um, builds off of the last chapter and gets into a, um, really, it's kind of the musical version of the previous chapter. And the great city, Babylon, is described as a woman, a prostitute, an adulteress, a temptress. It's described as this city when it falls, when the beast and his powers, when they turn on that city, there are going to be people who will show up for the funeral of the woman of the city. Who are they and why are they so sad? Let's listen to the text. Revelation 18, John says, After all this I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority. And the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout. Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen. She's become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture, and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich then i heard another voice calling from heaven come away from her my people do not take part in her sins or you'll be punished with her for her sins are piled as high as heaven and god remembers her evil deeds do to her as she has done to others double her penalty for all her evil deeds she brewed a cup of terror for others so brew twice as much for her she glorified herself Lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne, I am no helpless widow, and I have no reason to mourn. Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She'll be completely consumed by fire. For the Lord God who judges her is mighty. 
And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury, they will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, How terrible! How terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city! In a single moment, God's judgment came down on you. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. She bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant citrus wood, ivory goods, objects made of expensive wood and bronze and iron and marble. She also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and human flesh, bodies, that is, human slaves. The fancy things you loved so much are gone, the merchants cry. All your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. The merchants who became wealthy by selling her these things, they will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment, and they'll weep and they'll cry out, How terrible! How terrible for that great city! She was clothed in the finest purple and scarlet linens. She was decked out with gold and precious stones and pearls. In a single moment, in a single moment, all the wealth of the city is gone. And the captains and the merchants' ships and the passengers and the sailors and the crews, they will all stand at a distance. And they'll cry out as they watch the smoke ascend and they will say, where is there another city as great as this? And they will weep and they'll throw dust on their heads and they'll show their grief and they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. The ship owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, it is all gone. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven and people of God and apostles and prophets. For at last God has judged her For your sakes. And then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a huge millstone. He threw it into the ocean, and as he did, he shouted, Just like this, the great city Babylon will be thrown down with violence and will never be found again. And the sound of harps, singers, flutes, and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No craftsmen and no trades will ever be found in you again. The sound of the mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The happy voices of brides and grooms will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the greatest, the great magnates in the world, and you deceived the nations with your sorceries. In your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people and the blood of people that were slaughtered all over the world.
if you can get through all the different voices that are crying out and saying what they're saying, you begin to see a picture form. That this is a, uh, this is a text that's both laughable and horrific at the same time, if that's even possible. Because you have all of these uh, merchants and uh, kings, these rulers, these um, uh, captains of ships, everyone who was so dependent on this great city. And they're all crying and they're lamenting. Oh, it's so horrible. And there's that, there's that one telling verse where it talks about the, uh, the economy of the city. And it's good. I mean, you read through that, and it's like listening to the uh, morning farm report with all the you know, pigs and cattle and sheep and everything else and spices. And, uh, you know, and it's kind of boring, just like the farm report, you know, because you've got all these things that are bought and sold, and you're reading an inventory. Okay, great stuff. It's expensive. Wow. Ooh, look at all the gold and bronze and iron. Boy, there's a lot of trading going on in that city. And then you're caught off guard if, right at the end when it says, oh, and one of the things that she loved to sell were human beings. That in the great city, men and women, human beings made in the image of God had become nothing more than a commodity to be bought and sold. And so while all of these uh, funeral attenders are standing far off, Are they really crying because the great city fell down or are they crying because this means the end of their income? The great city, it's Rome, but it's also Babylon. It's every great empire city that has ever existed up to that point in the first century when John is giving this vision to his hearers of the seven churches. And I guess for us, the way we ought to hear it is, it's Rome, and it's Babylon, but it's also every great city that the world looks to. Fort Smith and the River Valley and all the cities around here, no matter how much we love them, the fact is we are more impacted by other cities in the world than we impact other cities. Oh, I know, we like to contribute, and we need to keep contributing, and we do a lot of good things, but the fact of the matter is, You and I are more impacted by cities near us, by capital cities, by cities like Washington, D.C., New York City, Los Angeles, Moscow even. Um, If if North Korea loses its collective mind, then we're going to be influenced by that. So on and so forth. There are great cities around the world that impact all of us, just as Rome or Babylon or any of those other great empire cities would have influenced even small towns that made up some of the seven cities where the churches were in John's day. That doesn't mean that the great city looks bad or seems bad. In fact, on the surface, the great city is just that. It's great. It's wonderful. It's got a lot going for it. You look at all those wonderful riches that it sold and all of the the, the economy that it built and the way that it it made an economy for the entire world. It's an important city. So when you hear about the great city, this this idea that it's a a prostitute, that it's a a woman, that it's a, 
uh, deceptive woman. This is John ripping off the facade of the great city because the city actually presents itself as something great. This isn't some sin city on the surface of it. This isn't New Orleans at Mardi Gras time. Okay. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't Las Vegas, uh, which, you know, any city that has as its slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, they're not hiding really anything. They're advertising it. But the great empire city presents itself as great, that it's wonderful, that it's historical, that it may even be divine. But beneath the surface, there are some problems. And the angels in this song call that out. If you look at uh, verses 23 and 24, three things are said. That this destruction is going to happen, and it's going to happen quickly. Because of three things. Uh, Number one, your merchants are lords. This is, I'm going to admit, this is hard to describe. Uh, Some of your Bibles will say, uh, your merchants were the great magnates. And uh, a magnate is a a leader in business. Um, Or it can be a a leader in... uh, uh, in politics, in, in, in its ancient meaning. But what it meant was the, their merchants had become great, powerful, influential people. They had become attached to power bigger than themselves. And they, just being tradesmen, and by the way, when he's talking about merchants here, he, he's not talking about the guy that uh, has the, you know, uh, the general store, Okay. Uh, this isn't Sam on Green Acres who has the uh, feed store where Mr. Mr. Douglas show up, you know, and, and uh, come in and buy a can of tomatoes. No, these, these are, are people who are so, they've got their own business empire that they can control other people because of it. And we've seen that in history, and maybe the way for us to grasp it is to understand that what John is describing with words, people in America have described with pictures. Uh, th- this comes from the 19th century, and here are the, uh, the protectors of our industry. And you've got people on there like, uh, uh, let's see, the, the Vanderbilt's probably the only name that you're going to recognize, really, but Fields and Gould and, and Jay Gould. And so uh, you, you've got these, these great business magnates on top of this uh, pile of money and then you have all of these workers and these tradespeople, and they are supporting the thing. The whole thing is built on their backs. And they would have been called the, the magnates of industry in a growing America. This is the same kind of thing that John is saying. And John is saying that because your merchants had become this powerful, and they dealt in the trade of human beings, and they became lords, the city's going to suffer because of that arrogance, because of that pride. And then he says, your magic deceived nations. Here he's talking about how the, um, the city has, has brewed up its own um, magic and sorcery. And what's really interesting is if you look back at the original word, it's, uh, it's pharmacy. I wouldn't do anything with that. I wouldn't try to make a sermon out of big pharma or anything like that. That's not what's going on here. 
But anything that becomes a, a technique or a power that we use to manipulate, manage, control people, whenever that is something that the powers that be use, there's a power there that's greater than any one of us and all of us, and it's at work. It has a corrupting work. And finally, just to make it plainly, the thing that's hidden beneath the surface is that the blood of prophets, the blood of saints, the blood of innocence flows through the streets of the great city. And it's just taken for granted. It's a great city. If you want to look at these as three realities, one of them is economic injustice. People get rich because they make other people poor. That doesn't, that's not the way economics has to be. But the great city, whatever it is, whether it's in their time or our time, will be judged by God when becoming rich means that other people have to suffer and become poor. You know, when God gives his vision for the kind of people that he wants his people to be, and you go back and you look, some of those boring sections in the Old Testament actually become principles for godly behavior. Little commands like when you harvest your crops, um, leave the edges of the field. Isn't it interesting that all the crops that we grow, there's always leftovers? I posted something on Facebook about that. I was a recipient of some good vegetables, but I love that about the summer at church. Oh, everybody's got vegetables. Somebody asked me today, you ready for some okra? I said, you bet. I'm ready for okra. Because plants, coming, what God gave us, it creates more. It creates an abundance. It can feed everybody. And when we can share, those of you who do that, you are participating in the ancient biblical practice of gleaning. You're leaving some of that. Now, actually, you're going the second mile at the same time because if we were going to be very Old Testament about it, you would leave your crops out there and come to church and tell the rest of us, hey, I've got some okra and tomatoes out there, but you're going to have to go out there and pick it yourself. But you're just so kind that you pack, you pick them yourselves and bring it to others. So, wow, Old Testament, New Testament combined right there. I hadn't thought about that. There is no reason when you look at what God says, that any group of people or any person has to prosper at the expense of others. That is not God's will. And it can be tough. Some of those instructions that God gives his people, that there must be a type of justice, that there must be a type of fairness. It's, it, it's, it's hard sometimes. Still trying to get my head wrapped around how that year of Jubilee works. The fact that they didn't practice it very often might be part of the problem. Any group that turns politics into their greatest cause, into their highest calling, actually creates a, a type of idolatry. That when we get so invested in the politics of this world that it will draw our allegiance away from God, You've got idolatry. The, the religions of the ancient world were often given not to uh, uh, comfort or um, to keep people from worrying about what really mattered. Sure, there was some superstition involved in, in all of it, but often the, the religions of the world would give people a way of believing that what they already accepted as true 
was somehow authorized by the divine. And so your best gods in the ancient world and in the time of John were gods that you could make them into anything you wanted to be. The problem with the old Greek gods and why they didn't believe in them was because they already had stories. Everybody already knew what they had done. So what they would do is they would come up with new gods. They would invent gods that were really blank slates. What's this god all about? Well, what's really important to you? What's important to me is that Rome prospers. That's what this god loves the most. This is how they would do their ancient idolatry. And we may not want a religion, but maybe we want a cause. And it might be a cause that we already believe in. And if we can find some way to put some sort of semi-religious gloss on it, we're going to believe that that's what's best and most important. Rome, the great city, Babylon, deceived people into believing that their cause was its cause. Finally, where that leads and why, that, why both of these can become a problem is because it ends up sanctioning violence for all the wrong reasons. Now, I know there's a twist in this scripture. Because here, the great city's being called out for its violence, and then the people are told to rejoice over the fall of the great city. How do you reconcile that? Well, because one is the judgment of these greedy, idolatrous people who want their way. The other is the justice of God. And they're not the same. Our justice, our judgment, our cries for justice will never compare to the justice of God. And we have to be very careful about mixing all of this together. And it creates a dilemma. Even as recently as the 20th century, and there's probably other examples, but the one that stands out is when National Socialism came to power in Germany. One of the first things they did was combine the church and the National Socialist Party. And so the two bookends of greatness for the nation become Hitler and Luther. I don't think that Luther would ever want to be associated with that. But he was dead and couldn't give his opinion. But there were a lot of churches in Germany that leaned into that. And there were churches that resisted that. But the cry of the churches that leaned into it was, one God, one nation, one Reich, one church. Now from the outside looking in, I mean, we know from history, we know from people who were there, we even know from movies that the Nazis are bad guys. And you hear something like that, and it's chilling. But if you're inside it, can you see it the same way? If you're inside the city, rather than out in the wilderness looking in, can you still see it the same way? I think this is what the call is to us, is to pay attention. Because there were well-intentioned Christians who bought into the deceptions. And here's the thing. 
I don't think that people go into it blindly. We've been warned. But the first word that we're told is to get out of the city because its fall is coming. And did you notice that over and over again, the, the cry, the funeral song of those who weep over the lost city is, it happens so quickly. It only takes an hour. Not a literal hour. It also says it takes a single day, but the point is, it's quick. You know, if you've ever seen buildings uh, torn down, the decay and the, 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 the deterioration of that building <clears throat> takes place over time. But when for reasons of safety it is time to take that building down, the destruction happens immediately. It comes down quickly. Maybe, historically, you can say that the great cities come down gradually. But there was some point at which they are finished. They're doomed. They're done. God says it's going to happen with the great city, with Babylon, with Rome, with whatever great empire or power sets itself up as a rival to God. And those who are going to be at the funeral are those who make a profit off of the the evil and the deception, the injustice of the city. Okay, but you didn't come here for a Bible lesson, a Bible uh, history. You came here for a word of God. All right, so what are we supposed to do? Here you go. 18.4 has one of the first commands of this passage. Come out of the city, my people. Come out of the city. A lot like the text in Hebrews. We've got to go and join Christ outside the city. We can't be afraid to do that. It can be hard to leave the city when we've invested in it. The city is all of those great cities I mentioned, and it's this city right there. The city is really the empires of this world. All of the structures, all of the systems that make up this world. And this is much more than us boycotting something that we don't... Boycotts don't work that much. Uh, This is more than just isolationism. Going off and living on a mountaintop somewhere, getting away from everybody. Sounds good, that doesn't always work. And and we're going to have to struggle with those verses in John 17 and 1 John 2. When, When Jesus prays in John 17 and he says, They're in the world just like I'm in the world, but they're not of the world. And we need to understand what that means to be in the world, but not of the world. You and I were not put here on this earth to remove ourselves from it, like a cult. Or to be angry and to boycott everything that we don't like. But somehow we're called to live in this world, and yet not accept its values or participate in things that are going to be judged by God. And the second thing that the passage says is rejoice or be glad. It seems almost sick to be glad at all this destruction that's happening, but the gladness and the rejoicing is called for because God has ruled in favor of the innocents. God has ruled in favor of the oppressed. 
Every wrong you suffered has been judged by God. That's the word. That God has not been silent. That God will not let the injustices stand. Here's the truth. You and I may not feel oppressed every day. Because sometimes we are the people who are, in, who are invested in the systems of oppression. But when you look to the people of the world who are oppressed... They're crying out for something to change. Why? Because their children are dying. Their children are starving. Some of us who are involved in reaching out to children who are abused, who are mistreated, we are taking a stand against systems of oppression. But in doing so, I think we're coming out of the city. We're coming out of the city and we're taking a stand with God against those things that will be judged, the kind of abuse, the kind of, um, the kind of systems of injustice and poverty that create these things. If, you're going, if you were looking for an easy answer, an easy two-point, three-point, whatever it may be from today's sermon, I cannot give it to you. And this is where the old slogan, well, the meaning of Revelation is, we all win, do we? God wins, but do we? You see, God does win because God judges. And it's not just because God is is bigger, stronger, and has a strong right hook and can smash everybody. It's because God is just. But the warning here is, be very careful about what you invest in, what you invest your time, what you invest your livelihood, what you invest your power and your energy in, because you might be investing yourself in something that's going to come apart when God finally judges. And there's nothing easy about this, because I know sometimes we have to go into places and we have to be that redemptive force amongst empires in this world. Maybe you work for a company They didn't necessarily invest it in the best things in this world. Maybe we've got mission efforts to countries that we don't support their politics, we don't support their governments, but we know that by being there and being a presence there, we can be a redemptive force. Or maybe the thing we need to do is withdraw from it completely. I can't answer that easily, but what I can say is we need a faithful community that's committed to the truth right here, us, so that when we get faced with these things, as Brent said earlier, we have more than just the world's wisdom to draw upon. We have the resources of heaven. We have the spiritual resources of God. We are the post-apocalyptic church because we know something that the world doesn't know. We know where all of this is heading. We know what's really beneath the surface. We have had the covers And the facades ripped off. And we can see it because God has shown it to us. We need to be the ones beginning right here in our own household, helping one another, saying, look, we can't participate in these systems that are built on corruption, that are built on sin, that contribute to pain and suffering. But we're going to have to work together and help one another out so that we can figure out what that looks like. And then maybe we can start sharing that with the world around us. Here's the thing. A lot of us struggle in this world 
some of us struggle because of all the bad choices and wrong things that we've done. Some of us struggle because of bad things that have happened to us. But because we're called to struggle for God's sake, He will protect, defend, and encourage us for our sake. The good news is that if you struggle because of your decisions or because of things that have happened to you, there is healing for that. There is hope that those struggles do not get the last word. The good news is that if all of us struggle with Christ because we remember Him, then when it counts, you can be assured He will not forget us. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you'll help us to be mighty and bold as we dare, as we dare to live for you, as we dare to struggle for you, knowing that for all the reasons that we can struggle in this life, struggling for you is the only one that is redeemed, that is, that is awarded. And Father, I just pray that we will be a community of witness to one another and to the world calling judgment upon the corrupt and wicked ways of this world that so often seduce us into thinking that's just the way things are. Father, help us to be a people who live as things will be in eternity. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song. If you want the elders up here to pray with you or back there in that room with pews, feel free to ask them for their prayers. Let's stand and sing.